everybody. Welcome back to the Science Institute's podcast. Today, we have our second episode in our entrepreneurship series. We're going to be talking to an interesting guest whose founder journey is pretty atypical to the model most of us graduate students think of when founding a company. I'm very excited to introduce the founder of Catalyst Neuro, Ben Dichter. Ben, why don't you give us a brief rundown of your academic background? How did you get to be the founder of Catalyst Neuro? Sure. So I, um, I knew since high school that I wanted to do neural engineering. I saw a video of a monkey controlling a robotic arm um, with just with his mind in high school biology class. And I just thought that was the, the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And I want to be a part of that research. Um, so I went to the University of Pittsburgh for undergrad and worked with some of the um, really state-of-the-art um, brain-computer interface labs there and really focused on neural engineering. And then I went to, um, I did a joint program in bioengineering between UCSF and Berkeley for grad school and took a lot of the um, a lot of the techniques and knowledge I learned in the non-human primate neurophysiology space and applied them to um, to human work where we were using ECOG to record um, from the brains of people who um, were going through treatment for epilepsy. So they had um, a neurosurgery to put electrodes in their brain for the treatment of epilepsy. And while they were there, uh, we could use this um, we could use this opportunity to study language, how they produced speech and how they understood speech. Um, and while I was doing that research, I found that I really enjoyed developing software to help people analyze data within the lab. Um, I, I kind of have a knack for that sort of thing. And I, one of the great parts about it was any work that I did would benefit not only myself, but everyone else in the lab. So it would kind of have a multiplicative effect in the lab and, um, and would allow people to do their own work better because I was able to help them um, you know, process the data and remove bad parts that had too many um, artifacts or noise in the data and really focus on the, on the good stuff where they could learn about neurolinguistics. And, um, and so when I finished grad school, I, um, you know, that was kind of my goal was to, uh, was to get a PhD in neural engineering for, for all of this time. And then I finally reached that goal and I didn't really have any, didn't know what to do next. Um, and I loved neuroscience and loved research, but I, but I didn't know that I wanted to be a professor. So, and I knew that I loved this, this, um, building software. So I just decided, let me try out just working with labs in that role. And so I went to a few labs and said, I wanted to be a data mercenary for their data. And luckily I found some groups that were interested in that sort of thing. Um, my first big opportunity was in Ivan Schultes's lab. And then the, I kind of gained this expertise in this new data format that allowed neuroscientists to easily exchange data between each other. And there ended up being a huge demand for it. So then I started realizing that if I wanted to really help the community, what I needed to do was develop a team. So it happened really very gradually where it just started out as me doing this. And then I was like, and then I, I hired one person and hired another person and, um, and eventually created an entire team um, for, 
for helping these neuroscientists build software that allowed them to collaborate with each other. And to maybe just to kind of put a button on it or to give the one-liner. So how would you describe the services that Catalyst Neuro provides? It sounds a lot like data management to me. And you mentioned that it's so far you've collaborated with a lot of academic labs. So would you say it's typical clients are academic labs or does it expand out further? Yeah. So our contracts come from a few different sources. So academic labs that um, that we have direct contracts with and also foundations that are interested in helping us and in, in funding us to do work with labs that they currently support um, and also directly from NIH grants. Uh, but in basically all of these cases, we are either working with labs to help them um, apply tools that allow them to homogenize data and publish it, or we're helping to develop those core tools. So APIs in MATLAB and Python, uniform data processing tools, data visualization tools that build upon the standard. So the standard is called NeuroData Without Borders. And the idea is that it packages all of the, um, all of the data that you collect with the necessary metadata for reanalyzing the data. So if you have electrodes in the brain of an animal that you're recording from and you wanna store those voltage traces, you need to say what the sampling rate of that data was, right? You need to say what electrodes where they were recording from. If you have electrodes, you need to say where those were in the brain. And so you end up with these kind of tree of dependencies of metadata that a neuroscientist would need in order to understand the data that you're giving them. Um, so that's basically what Neurodata Without Borders, NWB, is. It's kind of a way of specifying all of this data and metadata in a uniform way so that people can exchange data easily. And it's actually quite challenging to get some random data format into NWB, mostly because it requires in-depth understanding of the original data format, the data format that is currently in now, which um, the experimentalists in the lab may or may not have. You know, they probably, they often just have their own kind of way of accessing that data and they don't worry too much about how it's stored. So, so we have expertise in our team in understanding all of these different data formats that, um, that people use that are popular in the field and, and efficient programs for converting that data. And Ben, so this um, need to develop better tools and channels for exchanging neuroscience data, how did mm -hmm. you first identify this need? And then how did you go about validating that it's real, there's a market for it, that it could be profitable? Yeah, so I think this need is pretty apparent to neurophysiologists in the field. It's very difficult to, um, to share data with each other and collaborate. It often takes months of back and forth effort to really understand all of the details necessary to, um, to run a new analysis on someone else's data um, if you don't use a format like NWB. So the value to me was pretty obvious and it's been clear to a lot of other people that I talked to. The, um, the challenging part was validating that it actually could be done in a viable business model rather than that it was valuable because um, you know, academia is not, is not like uh, industry, you know, the incentives are quite different. So, um, you know, a lot of academics are driven by the publish or perish 
business model essentially that's their business model right like they they want to um have the the most impactful publications um and they wanted to as soon as they're finished with one publication um they, they want to start working on the next thing because they have you know 10 things working on in the background and they're just trying to um optimize in that way and that is good in a lot of ways you know it really is um, an effective way, I think, of motivating scientists to come up with really impactful discoveries. Uh, but one of the downsides is that they aren't really incentivized to make their, to, to package their software and their data such that others can use it, right? Um, so at least historically, you know, if you had a piece of software uh, that you used to analyze data, or, or if you had a really valuable data set, it would be probably better for you, or at least most people think it would be better for them to focus on a new project instead of taking the additional effort to package that. So, um, so the business model really was going to labs and saying, look, I know you don't wanna focus on, on the basically software development, and um, and software engineering and making all of this code and and this data reusable to others, uh, but I do. That's precisely what I'm interested in. And um, if if you have additional funds in um, in current grants, or if you want to write us into grants that you're applying for, you know, we can focus on the parts of this that you know we we know you're not. Um, you either don't have the skills or interest to work on, usually just the interest, they, they would much rather do their um, their science. So, um, and also we, we specialize in it. So we're really quite good and we can do it very efficiently. Um, so it it was really a matter of, um, of starting small and validating that, um, you know, in a single group. So it was, um, so this initial group was a group of five labs that, um, had a joint grant, and as part of that grant, they were supposed to share data with each other. And they said they would use NeuroData without borders in the grant. And so they hired me to figure that out. And this was really my first time learning about NWB. Um, so then I realized that, you know, I needed to gain a pretty in-depth understanding of this format because the five labs really spanned the, the scope of the of neurophysiology. You had electrophysiology labs, you had optical physiology labs, you had labs doing simulation, large scale simulations. So I really needed to understand all the ins and outs. Um, and uh, and then I, you know, other labs learned about this. We I networked through conferences and got more people interested in it, and just gradually built up a team. So yeah, touching on that kind of team aspect, especially when the company was just you at first, mm -hmm. how did you go about finding the right people to add to your team, the right people that had skill sets that maybe you didn't have? Is that how you went about it? How did you do it? So the the best the best people are really found through word of mouth. So um, so my my first person I added to the team. Um, was Konstantinos Nasiotis, who I um, met through, um, you know, a friend of a friend. Um, he was working on software called um, called Brainstorm, which it, and he was building a a data processing pipeline, and 
I, I looked it up and I was really impressed with how well documented it was. And I thought, well, this is somebody who's really building software that's above the standard quality for grad students that are just trying to get a paper out. You know, this guy really cares about the usability of his software. Um, and I thought, that, um, and he clearly has the skills because he led the development of, of this branch of Brainstorm that was analyzing neurophysiology data, which is precisely the data that I was working with. Um, so I, um, I thought that would be a great, um, just a great partnership with him. Um, he's actually since gone off and started his own consulting business. And now he works for industry. He's doing quite well. And, um, and we collaborate occasionally. Um, we're still on very good terms. Uh, but that showed me that this was possible that, to bring teammates on board. And then um, I used, actually, the, the best recruiting tool I've used so far, so far is a, an organization called Neurotech X. So it's an organization that um, they, they do a lot of like training events and networking events, and they do like student groups, and they have a website that has a job board specifically for neurotechnology companies. So you see companies like Neuralink um, and others like posting in there. So um, they actually reached out to me and offered to post the job on their on their job board. I guess they must have been kind of just starting it out at that point. And I was like, sure, that sounds good. But that's really been the number one place for high quality applicants because you find um, you find people who are in grad school or recently out of grad school in neuroscience who are really um, they have the expertise and, um, and they've been really high quality. So um, I would, yeah, I would say, you know, find those kind of niche job boards. It, it's probably going to work out better than, than uh, like Indeed or something like that, where just, just about anyone can apply and find it. Yeah, it sounds like the perfect channel. Yeah. And, and a follow-up to that, how did you balance exactly um, how many people you need on your team to the task and uh, demands of your company? Yeah, so the strategy that I've started to use is we have people on the team that are putting full-time or almost full-time into Catalyst Neuro, and they are point people on projects. So I'll, I'll try my best to match up the, an individual project with a person who has the skills and interests for that project. Um, and they'll be responsible for making sure we hit all of the milestones. Uh, but we also have people on the team that aren't matched up to any particular project, but they're more specialists in certain technologies. Um, and they often are the lead developers or the core developers of certain technologies that we that with like open source tools that we've started to use. And so they won't be re responsible for any particular project. They'll kind of play zone defense and they can work with the, the point people who are focusing more on the milestones and the communication with the clients. Um, and so between those two types of people, we're able to make sure that we cover our bases with the clients and we're able to make sure that we, um, that we use the tools effectively and to support the developers who are um, who are creating those tools that we rely on. And 
Ben, in building out your company so far, were there any points where you were afraid that the company would not be successful? And how did you go about mitigating those fears then? Yeah, it's always, um, you know, it's always a, a bit of a fear. Uh, as the company grows, you know, I have more and more people that are relying on continued funding and a bigger reputation that we need to defend. We, if we totally flop on a project, you know, that's a lot of damage control. And um, it would be, you know, again, it would be hard to kind of get new contracts. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly juggling the, okay, we have to make sure we do an excellent job on every contract that we get. And we, I'm, and we also need to make sure that we get enough contracts that we can support the team, especially as it grows. Uh, I guess the, the one thing I can say I've been doing to mitigate that is to grow slowly. Um, so that's on, on both sides. So, um, I will grow a team. I grow my team as we have contracts coming in, um, and not in anticipation of contracts. So I'm never too nervous about, um, about not having the money to pay people. And then I also only take contracts that I'm sure we can do. Now there's kind of a catch 22 there, which is I can't take contracts without having people and I can't take people without having contracts. So um, there is this kind of, I would say careful um, negotiation between the two, right? Where a contract is, it doesn't just like immediately appear, right? There's a whole negotiation phase with the lab. And so as we're getting closer to, um, to a finalized um, starting date for a given project, then I can, you know, at the same time, I'm, I'm talking to people who are interested in working or ramping up people who are already on the team to um, a higher commitment per, of hours per week. And through that, I can kind of do them both simultaneously. That works most of the time uh, it, when it, it, it's not always easy to time those perfectly. And then we kind of have to figure things out and, um, and put in an extra push on our team basically to get contracts done. Yeah, so this, so just from what it sounds like, this growth model sounds quite different from what I think most grad students uh, have been familiar with. That's more like say a biotech startup where you have very defined like regulatory milestones or milestones imposed upon you by say like a venture capitalist that wants a return. So maybe could you touch on that a little bit more? How does this growth model differ from the standard prototypical one? That's a good point, Daniel. This is um, a very different type of startup. And I hesitate to even call it a startup because um, the startup kind of has that implication that right. you're um, in the type of business model that you are, um, that you're describing where you have funding rounds and, um, and you have venture capitalist funding. So I got this idea from a book called, uh, I think it's called Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Okay. Um, and Famous VC uh, guy. Yeah, yeah. And he makes a really good point about um, the types of companies that VCs are interested in. Um, and he probably makes it better than me. It's a short book. I, I recommend um, you check it out for your listeners if you're interested. Uh, but the idea is 
that BCs are really only interested in companies that are moonshot companies that are going for a potential billion dollar valuation. Like if I went to a VC firm and I said, I've got a business model that's, you know, it's, you're going to make your money back in a few years with very high certainty, but we're never going to be a high value company. You know, one would naively think, well, if, you know, if you can make a good business case that you're going to get, that you're going to make a good ROI, then they would probably be interested, but they're not actually interested. They only care about the companies that could be the next Facebook or Airbnb or Uber, or, you know, pick your favorite startup. Uh, and the reason for that is that the portfolio of these VC firms, um, if you look at the value split by company, it's they have a tiny amount of value um, that they get from the from the businesses that are doing reasonably well but never really grow to anything big, and then the vast majority of the value ends up being made up by these these whales, these Ubers, and um, and Airbnbs and the like. And so if you, if you look at those, um, if you look at their portfolio, you're like, well, it doesn't make sense for them to focus on anything but those, because at the end of the day, those are what are going to provide the value. So, okay. So you take that concept. They're only interested in these big companies. So the result of that means that if I want to start a company, I kind of have to make a decision. There are only really two types of startups. They're the ones that work for VCs and the ones that don't work for VCs. So I had to make a decision early on. Do I want to try to, to shape this into the type of company that VCs might be interested in? You know, can I think of a way to, um, to design Catalyst Neuros so that it could reach this billion dollar valuation? Now, I think, honestly, I think that might have been possible to do. Um, you know, if I really think about um, other neurotechnology companies out there and how we could potentially partner with them um, or build our own um, like software platform that would that would work um, with with various you know hardware solutions. I, I mean, it's it's feasible. Um, but I really decided I didn't want to go that route for a number of reasons. Um, you know, I. I started this company because I really saw this need in the field that people were not able to collaborate with each other as um, as effectively as I thought they should be able to. And this company was really built to address that need. And as part of that, I wanted to release all of our code that we write as um, as open source and just release it as we write it. You know, I wanted this to be a really open company because ultimately, our goal is to try to open up communication in the field. And I, um, I felt like it would be counterproductive um, and a bit hypocritical to, to not release the code, right? That, that was supposed to be opening the field up. And I also wanted to have work-life balance, you know? Like I think these, the founders of these companies that are going for this, um, this enormous moonshot valuation, I think, you know, good for them. They're, um, I think that's, um, it's really ambitious and it's really awesome. Uh, but I just came out of a PhD and I was really kind of worn out from that. And I was like, um, maybe we can create this company that, that really gives people a lot of flexibility, um, including myself. But it's one of the, um, it's one of the kind of core philosophies I would say of Catalyst Neuro is, um, is this idea of flexibility. Like our team is, is fully remote and all over the world. 
And many of them are um, also doing other things. So they're kind of part-time in Catalyst Neuro. Um, and that's been, it's been really great for, for all of us. Um, yeah, so it's really, you know, we are a few years in and we have a team of eight or nine, depending on how you count. Um, so it's quite different in its trajectory than what you would expect for, um, for your standard VC company. Uh, but it's a good business, you know, it's, um, it's profitable. It's, it's doing really uh, valuable things for the field, I think. Um, we're able to support a team and, and they, um, you know, they're able to have flexibility and work-life balance and, um, and make money. And uh, so as a business, it's going great, but it may look a little different from the, um, from your, you know, the VC backed companies that you're likely to interview um, for the rest of the podcast. And I think that's something that I would um, that I would emphasize for your listeners is you might have an idea for a company that is not viable in the VC model, um, like my company, and uh, that's perfectly fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and it can be a great way to go if you're able to be profitable from day one. Um, it may not be worth the risk of going through the um, through the VC channels and to uh, and to go for that huge valuation. Um, <clears throat> on the other hand, you know, if you have something that you think really could um, could change the world and and could disrupt a current industry and and could be worth that much enough that VCs would be interested you know, there are obviously upsides to that as well about the, the impact that you can have going that route. Um, so it's just a matter of really thinking critically about you know, the idea and the business model behind this, whether you're a small scale or a big scale company um, and just realize that there's nothing wrong with being a small scale company. <laughs> well, I think that kind of has me thinking down you, you didn't go down the VC route, but obviously you still want the company to grow and be successful. So say in five or 10 years, where, where do you see it growing to? Is it still going to be servicing academic labs or maybe expanding to other sectors and still trying to keep to that core philosophy of, you know, helping scientists really just share their data? Where do you want it to be? Right. Right. Yeah. So we started with data standardization and we're moving towards data processing and analysis. Um, so I think we're kind of, we're starting to branch out into more, just more aspects of the, the data analysis and management um, needs of the neuroscience community. Um, but yeah, I think we, we've had a few conversations with companies, companies building acquisition systems um, that are potentially interested in working with us, and kind of um, we could we could help them build data conversion and data analysis processing pipelines. Um, so, but that's kind of you know we're academic adjacent, I guess. Where most of our clients are academic, and so that would be working with companies that are academic adjacent. So it's like a small step different from what we are currently doing. Um, I think if we the, a step further from that would be to work with with neurotechnology companies 
where the scientists aren't the clients, right? Where they're building commercial hardware or software or medical um, systems. And uh, and yeah, I think that would be um, that would be a great direction for us. You know, we'd have to focus more on on technologies that are used in in humans and less so on stuff that's specific to animals. Um, and we're starting to do that now. I would say I definitely have my eye on opportunities to go in that direction, but we haven't made any big moves in that direction yet. To be continued. Yeah. And now switching gears a little bit, I think a lot of student co-founders or founders, they come from more of a scientific background. Like yourself, you did your PhD. So how did you develop the non-technical skills needed to build your company? Um, thinking about maybe like the business or financial aspects, like just even how to negotiate a contract and all that, or people and team management skills. Right. I mean, it was just a a lot of trial and error, you know? Um, I mean, it's true. Once I started this company and I started developing this team, um, that was the hard part, you know, for me was learning the business side of things rather than um, the the neuroscience and the programming side. Uh, and I'm still learning, you know, because there are all sorts of different types of contracts that we have, some with labs, some with um, foundations, some with NIH, some that are short-term, some that are long-term and all, of, and some that are hour-based, some that are milestone-based. And was, I just try out a bunch of different types of things. And um, and I realized, okay, an, an hour-based contract is nice, but I can't always estimate how many um, how many hours. Um, so, so a milestone is nice if you if you have a good estimates. But if you uh, if you're working a lot more on these contracts than you expected to, then you might actually end up losing money there. Um, whereas, you know, if, if you have tools that allow you to do things very quickly and very efficiently. Um, it might be nice to do a milestone-based contract where you're focusing not on how much work you're doing, but on the value that you're providing for the labs. And if you're able to do that more efficiently, good for you. Um, so, it, um, so I've been experimenting with different types of contracts and um, and learning as I go. I would say, uh, you know, starting small and um, and growing gradually has helped a lot with that. Uh, and also leaning on mentors. You know, I've, I have a family friend who um, who has a lot of experience with academic grants, um, and she's helped me a lot with uh, um, with just figuring out contracts and stuff like that. Um, and uh, one of the things that's helped me is as I'm working with different companies and uh, academic institutions, I will look at the um, the contracts that they send me and I will just steal parts of it that I like and put them in my own contracts. Um, and so, yeah, so, uh, you know, you have to read it and understand it, right? But it's actually much easier, I would say, to read a contract than to write it, right? Like, it's not that hard to understand when you read, but I wouldn't trust myself with writing it from scratch. So, um, so being able to just lift parts of contracts that I like has been helpful. Um, you know, also like uh, how you configure your company, whether it's like an LLC or an S corp or a C corp, I've had to spend more time than I expected to learning about that, learning about taxes. 
Um, you know, unfortunately, I've found that every hour that I spend learning about that kind of thing ends up being the the most high value way I can spend my time, I think, because like you do, you find yourself um, avoiding pretty big uh, traps um, or, or mistakes if you do that. Uh, so, uh, so I have spent some time learning about that stuff. Um, which is frustrating because what I want to be doing is, you know, training my team and, and solving problems, but um, that's just kind of a natural overhead of developing a company, unfortunately. So I, I think to close us out, if you could give a piece of advice to uh, kind of late stage PhDs uh, who aren't totally sure what they want to do, or if they're interested in the startup world, whatever kind of startup, what would you tell them uh, have that have been your learnings? Uh, I guess a few things. Um, one is that the, that the contacts I've made during my PhD have been really instrumental in developing this business. You know, it's a lot, been a lot about networking. And one of the, um, one of the aspects of my PhD that's really helped me is that I was involved in a lot of different projects. Like I was a middle author on a lot of papers and I really enjoyed doing that. Um, um, like working with collaborators and helping them work with our data and, um, and kind of offering uh, my expertise in certain areas. So, and, and that, that's, I've really leveraged that in terms of building a network that I'm able to now use as a client base or people who are able to help me find clients. Um, so that's one thing is I would say, use the, the time in your PhD as an opportunity to build a really strong network that you can then leverage. I think that's useful, whether you're going to be in academia or you're going to go into industry. Um, if the industry is you know related to your academic field, um, you know, another thing is when I talk to neuroscientists about this, they, they sometimes will say thing, something like, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> Like, uh, you know, I didn't know you could just go off on your own and um, and start a company and not be part of an academic institution. Um, and uh, so it's, I mean, I, I didn't know you could either. is <laughs> really um, the way that I respond. It's like, I, I just thought it was worth a try. So I think that's gonna be true, not just of this style of business, but of really any good startup, right? People are going to say, I didn't know you could do that. Um, that's kind of almost the hallmark of a good startup. Um, so if people are reacting like that, or if you're reacting like that to your own idea, don't run away from that. That might be the secret sauce, right? Um, something that, that you feel like you can do and, um, but, but it's not currently, um, it's not currently an established practice. Well, Ben, thank you so much for sharing your experience and, and your insight. I think it's going to be super valuable and a, a lot of PhDs might jump in just now. So thank you so much. Have a great one. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to our discussion with Ben Dichter, founder of Catalyst Neuro. 
we heard about how Ben identified a clear need for better software solutions and how data was managed and shared during his time in his PhD in neurophysiology. How he addressed that need with a software consulting company for neuroscientists and how he built his company under a business model that does not rely on venture capital funding. We look forward to you tuning in again in our next episode when we speak with Bhavana Mohanraj. Bhavana is an assistant director at the Ventures Arm of the Penn Center for Innovation, and she will be sharing her perspectives from helping early stage life science spinouts get off the ground.